So today I'm in leafy West London where I'm about to meet singer Sophie Ellis-Bexter. And I'm about to go and have a peek in her house and see the famous kitchen where she entertained us all during lockdown with her wonderful kitchen discos on Instagram. Maybe... Maybe it all made sense that we provided that space. Like, we did just want to bring a bit of delight. It was just about joy. It wasn't anything else. It was quite a pure exchange in that way. And um, it was amazing. I don't know what kind of a year I would have had without it. I'm Anushka Dukas, and welcome back to My Life in Seven Charms. For me, there are so few things which can evoke a memory like a tiny, detailed charm. In this new series, I'll be meeting seven extraordinary women and hearing their stories through this very special 18-karat gold biography. This week's guest on My Life in Seven Charms began her career as an occasional very tiny guest on Blue Peter. By her early 20s, she was already a successful pop singer with a string of hits Since then, she's been a Strictly finalist and one of the masked singers, and in between, she's a mother of five gorgeous boys. She danced into all our homes with her sparkling kitchen disco during lockdown and has now turned it into a best-selling album. I'm so pleased to welcome Sophie Ellis-Bexter to My Life in Seven Charms. Hello. Thank you. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to disagree with anything there. No, that's good anyway. It's all factually accurate. Do you remember? Um, do you remember going on to Blue Peter, um, the little one? I don't know if I remember specifically the TV, you know, appearances, but I remember going to the studio all the time. Definitely. I mean, to be honest with you, every time I walk into a TV studio now, it takes me back to being like four or five. Oh really? Mm. Absolutely. <laughs> so, am I right in thinking before we get on to your first job? But when it, when you were there, you were busy nicking Blue Peter badges. I didn't steal the badges. No, I didn't steal the badges, actually. Um, my mum used to have to wear a badge every time she did the show. Right. She'd doing the show twice a week. So she'd always be bringing them home. So our home was filled with a lot of Blue Peter badges. Oh, okay. But um, no, I did, I did definitely try and uh, cash in on it a bit and try and sell them. I say try because this is when I was at primary school. So my mum did Blue Peter when I was between the ages of four and eight. So pretty little. So I was trying to create some economy in a school playground where most people don't carry any cash so <laughs> I think there's a few people out there who still owe me 50p yeah they still owe you 50p yeah, uh, yeah well first first business venture exactly it's pretty young so so if your first charm um I love this charm and now I've seen it so the first charm is a disco ball which opens to reveal writing which says our true intent is all for your delight so, I mean, it's not hard to imagine how this should be, being a jeweller, making in diamonds and 18-karat gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried to play to your strengths. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Just covered it in diamonds, yeah, it's fine. Thanks so much. <laughs> so it's three-dimensional, white gold, uh, fully encrusted with diamonds. And I, I kind of played with it and thought, no, I think it should be a locket. And I think because, actually, the quote's quite long, so I think we have a little almost a little scroll inside with the quote inside it. Mm-hmm. And and that'll be like a scroll in yellow and our true intent is all for your delight. We're going to be engraved in it. It'll click shut. And if you shine the light on it, it will behave like a disco ball. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, obviously, we, you know, for those of us um, that were following you, it was all about the kitchen disco. <laughs> but 
I assume. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, it's about it's about lots of things actually. It's about home. It's about the kitchen discos. It's about my love affair of music. It's about where I'm at in my professional life as well. I suppose in terms of my understanding of where I am in the you know in the on the rungs in terms of my role when I go on stage and want to try and entertain people really you know I, I take my job seriously but I have a lot of fun doing it so when I come out on stage I, I really want to get people dancing you know I want to try and captivate as many of them as possible and try and get them all on board but the significance of the quote uh, is that uh, years ago someone gave me a book that had been put together by Martin Parr mm. uh, the British photographer and it was all shots of, sort of 1950s and 60s butlins and the colours are incredible and they've got this weird surreal tone to them where you can't tell how much of it is staged and how much of it is just people having a nice time in the Butlins bar or whatever it may be. And outside on the big building that was next to the swimming pool, Billy Butlins had put up, I think it's the Skegness Butlins, our true intent is all for your delight. And it's written in these huge letters across the front of this building. It looks incredible. Mm. And this, the quote, I was like, oh, that's awesome. It's so kind of striking and I liked the way it felt to say it you know what I mean and to read it so I got these big sticky letters and I put them up in our playroom which I've just seen which you've just seen uh and luckily for me I've got a household of people who are quite good about just letting me do whatever I want when when the the feeling takes me so seeing me sticking these letters up and trying to get them all straight everybody was like okay then fine so it sat there for a while and then when we went into the first lockdown last year and we started doing these kitchen discos, they were basically a coping mechanism for the strangeness of our new world with the pandemic. And as a family, our coping mechanism for that stuff is usually to try and introduce a bit of daftness and joy when things get a little bit stressful mm-hmm. and when tensions are running high, which they definitely were. So the first disco was my husband's idea. It was um, his idea? It was, yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't know what to do with myself. I felt totally discombobulated thrown into lots of different roles I wasn't expecting to be in what mummy full-time mummy full-time yeah not so much the mum it's more like the parenting through something where I didn't have all the answers and I felt quite anxious about things myself you know the news was very heavy I was expected to be wearing a teacher's hat very quickly um to be uh keeping a very consistent um, and comforting routine in amongst the time when everything that Richard and I have been working towards and all the stuff we had in the diary just vanished. So, and I missed people, I missed connection, I missed everything. So Richard said, why don't we do a, a disco on, on the Friday night? I don't even think he called it a disco, just like we can do one of your party sets and live stream it. And I was like, that's absolutely bonkers. At the time, our youngest was 14 months, yeah. crawling around everywhere. Um, I was like, how on earth do I sing and keep an eye on a calling baby and parent the others and just try and keep keep these bits in my head but we had a go and we really enjoyed it what and about the boys what did they think about it I mean presumably the little ones just went along yeah what did the bigger ones the big think? ones really you know they I, I never forced any of them to come by the way I'd say oh we're doing one on Friday if you fancy it and then mostly I'd get a full house but sometimes you know some of them would stay upstairs or yeah. choose to do something else and obviously they never really understood that anyone was watching <laughs> No, I guess that's... (laughs) But I do think um, they understood that we all just had this half hour where they could just jump around. And I would sing songs as well that I thought they might like. Like I did one song from Moana and I'd play things around the house and build up to the disco. Like, I'm thinking of doing this cover, what do you reckon? And learn the lyrics while they're in the bath and all that kind of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, that's that's sweet. 
Have you got a um, major kind of fancy dress box? Or, yes. Have you? <laughs> have you always had that? Yeah. I mean, the, the, my outfits, I just, I've got tons. I could have done another... Yeah. I'm not careful what you wish for, but I could do another year of Kevlar's <laughs> but, um, but for the kids, we were definitely adding to the animal mask collection. Yeah. That became Richard's thing. He would always put on a silly head. Um, so we definitely grew in that. And I think I got a bit more into some of the backdrops and the tinsel curtains and stuff just because it was a way of doing something a bit silly when everything else was so heavy. Just, to, you know, let's wear sequins and embrace the ridiculousness of the fact that we're all stuck at home. Yeah. We didn't expect to find ourselves living through this. Let's just run headlong into the the, the craziness of it all, really. Um, and also the tonic that is music. It's escapism, but it's also catharsis. You know, I'd be having rants or letting off steam or whatever it may be in between singing Julie Andrews or whatever I'd chosen to sing that week. <laughs> and it felt really good. It gave us an outlet. And, and also I think the adrenaline and the, you know, the the sort of rhythm of doing something live where there was lots of elements of what could go wrong yeah. made us gave us that feeling we get during a gig, basically, because that's the same, an extension of that feeling. And was, uh, <laughs> do, was it kind of instantly successful, week one? Um, I think the first, it was in Sephora, we got a really warm feel. I thought people were going to make fun of me, to be honest, because like, I was wearing like a sequin catsuit and I'd no, really gone for it. Yeah. So I thought people were going to say, uh, nice try, but that's kind of embarrassing, actually. But people were really warm and it made me realise that everybody needed a bit of that in their lives, really. We were all feeling pretty weird together. But also it was, you know, I'd get messages from my dad or from Richard's parents saying, oh, you know, I can see that Mickey's pulling himself up on the table now and had a little bop. Or it was funny when Ray put on his Spider-Man suit or whatever might have happened that week. So they, for our parents, they were seeing the grandbabies um, for all our family, yeah, for connection. our friends. Yeah, and there yeah. were some friends that came every week. And we'd have a cocktail together and it was all virtual, of course, but it was just really nice. And then I started getting involved in the stories and hearing from people. And I'd never really engaged on that level with everybody that, you know, people that might follow me on Instagram. But I was replying to people and listening to their stories and it just became like part of a community. And so so I can really imagine them here. It's weird. Like before each gig, we'd move the table out of the way and get ourselves ready. And we always went live at 6.30 on a Friday, but I felt like I could almost see them. You know, and after the, we'd finish, I'd be like, oh, we didn't have that much mess in the house considering how many people came around, which is really bonkers. <laughs> That's so but weird. it shows you like the mind trick of it, I guess. But yeah. but then towards the end, I looked up and there's this sign I'd stuck there that our true intent is all for your delight. And it was like, maybe, maybe it. it all made sense that we provided that space. Like we did just want to bring a bit of delight. It was just about joy. It wasn't anything else. It was quite a pure exchange in that way. Yeah. And um, I d- it was amazing. I don't know how, what kind of a year I would have had without it. Yeah, yeah it felt good. Yeah, needed a bit of that. How many did night. you do? What was the total? 20 for, the, okay. for that, because um, we did a few sort of occasional. And, you know, it's a bit like Mary Poppins. I can bring it back, but it just it needed to kind of, it had done its thing. And, and I, I didn't want it to be like, oh, there's that crazy family doing like the 73rd disco, you know. <laughs> but so I bet you never on. thought you'd, would you, I mean, did you think, oh, it'll be a new album? No, 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 no. It wasn't until halfway through that I really even wanted to give any space to it in my in my sort of day job side of things because I felt probably like lots of people that the pandemic stuff was like a pause button and then we were just going to press play again and go back. It was really only the penny dropped quite slowly. I think that oh no, this is this is now something that has shaped people and we do. That's okay to acknowledge it and it doesn't mean that you know you just you've absorbed it to get guess a bit more. So. 
that's when I thought I'd really love to take this live so I can actually see people and do a party set and do the covers and have some fun. So that's the first idea. So that's the tour, which will be next spring now. Um, right. And the album was just born out of, yeah, doing the covers and the singles and, you know, just to kind of acknowledge it really, make it, covers. draw it into what I normally do. The cover's great. Ah, it's cheers, so yeah, it's so fun. uplifting and, yeah, it's fun. really, it is fantastic. Good. second charm mm-hmm. was a tiny tube carriage yeah and it said you said i want it to be district line tube carriage with richmond on the front so i've i've seen that so i've seen it as literally a three-dimensional tube train white gold little red rubies at the front and the wheels by the way the wheels will turn they will absolutely turn and swivel That's even lovely. though it'll only be this big <laughs> <laughs> um but um Tell me about the tube train. Yeah, I suppose for me this is sort of incorporating a few elements because when I was choosing my charms, I knew I wanted to have something that represented my teenage years and heading into town. And for me, the, the tube was my independence. I've still got a lot of love for the tube because it's always—it's almost like a... It takes me back a little bit to being sort of 16, 17 and... Freedom. Yeah, freedom and going out clubbing and just all of that stuff. It was just really significant for me. Um, But also I've lived near Tubes for a lot of my life. The majority of my life in London has been near the Tube. I live near one now. So I can see the Tube station from bedroom windows. And in my house when I was very little, house my mum and dad used to live in together... I was on the road adjacent to a train station. And then when my mum moved, uh, where she was living with my stepdad, I could, my bedroom again, looked over um, Ravenscourt Park tube station. So that's the district line. And my dad stayed at the end of the district line. So he was, you could take it to Richmond and then it was um, one stop on on the train. So this kind of incorporates going westbound to go and see my dad or going eastbound to go into town to meet my mates. So it kind of had a bit of everything that's there. so interesting. Because your parents uh, separated, they, they divorced when you were quite small, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was four. Four, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so you live with your mum. Mm-hmm. I just want to know a bit about your childhood, actually, really, yeah, yeah. when you, um, you know, how it was growing up for you. Yeah, so when they first um, divorced, yeah, I lived with my mum primarily, but I'd see my dad every other weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had about three years with my mum and I when it was just the two of us, and then she met my stepdad, John, and they found out they are having a baby quite quickly, after about three months. Right. <laughs> so when I was eight, my brother Jack was born. And it was a very happy time with Jack in the world, especially. And my mum and John had a very, very loving, happy marriage. And my dad actually remarried as well by the time I was nine or ten to my stepmom, Polly. And on that side, I've got my brother and two sisters as well. They're much younger than me. They're only in their early 20s. But So I always feel that out of one unhappy marriage, I got two happy ones. Um, And I've just loved growing the family and... So the longest I've ever gone in my life without a baby somewhere is, is, that, is that eight years before Jack was born. And then since then, it's been pretty regular. And even now with the kids, my own kids, they remind me like little stage. I think that, that sort of naught to three stage in, in kids' lives is so visceral. You know, the weight of them and the way their fingers look when they're pointing to things and the way their faces move when they're thinking. And it's like all of that all sort of all ties in and it's like all the chronology kind of... You know, it's such a, ba- a sort of a rubbery thing, isn't yeah. it, time? Yeah. And I now take my kids to the same primary school that my brother and sister went to. So sometimes they'll be playing on the same, you know, swing seats in the park so, as the one yeah. that they were in. And I, I find all that really comforting. And 
I really need one of my brothers or sisters to take over the babies now. <laughs> I can't have the chain break, you see. It's like a maximum of well, six five years. Five down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, like, Jack and Martha have got to get on with it now because I feel like the baton should be wrestled out of my hands, to be honest. Got to take it. Yeah, take it <laughs> For my husband's sake, to be honest. <laughs> cool. so, so, growing up, so then... At what point did you suddenly think, right, parties, London, get on the tube? And, mm. uh, as soon as I was able, I think. I mean, <laughs> at the time, um, youth culture was very much fixated on music. So all our TV programmes and magazines and all that were always about music. So I had already got a massive passion for it. And when the Britpop scene really exploded in the mid-90s, that was you know really rich for our, our sort of musical breeding ground so that's the time when me and my friends would go to gigs and I was just yeah it felt like the right place right time for me I loved living in London being able to go and actually see bands that I loved live yeah, so excited so I'm so lucky but when did you start singing I mean when did you even realize that it was a thing for you well, apart from loving music it doesn't mean you could sing no or even <laughs> I don't think it definitely didn't occur to me to do it for a living um so I always feel like it came to me quite late, really, because I didn't, I didn't have singing lessons or anything oh, like didn't? that. No, I loved singing, but it wasn't something I thought of. And then, when I was sixteen, I went to a club and I met a guy who said, "Oh, I've got a friend looking for a singer for a band." And I thought, mm, "A band? That's probably something I should do." And tell my grandkids I was in a band once, you know, almost like a rite of passage. <laughs> um, so I joined that band, and then as soon as we did our first gig, I felt like, "Oh, this is." This is what I've been looking for. And it was like all the dots joined up. Um, and, and you went straight to be the singer for the band? Yeah, I did. And um, this oh, okay. guy, Billy, that formed my first band, which is called The Audience. And he, quite strategically, he'd already sent out demo tapes to get some interest from labels. And every time we did a gig, we had another record company make an offer. So by the time I reached my 18th birthday, we had six record deal offers on the table and he used my 18th birthday as the marker of announcing who we'd signed to so I did my 18th birthday at this club called the Borderline in Soho and at midnight so literally when I turned 18 we announced on stage we were going to sign to Mercury so yeah it was quite cool so that was April and then in May I sat my A-levels so I finished school and then in June I went off and Went touring. <laughs> and there saying. was no question in your head that, that you were going to do anything. I mean, university, you're just like, no, this is what I, I want to do. I applied to uni, actually, but I deferred my first year. And I thought, OK, I'll go off and, and go touring and see how that feels. But as I got further into it, I thought, oh, no, I, I really want to do this full time. But then sadly, by the time I was 20, the band got dropped. So it was all very quick. Everything went very fast. My friends were still finishing their degrees and I thought, oh, golly, I've really screwed this up. My, my band didn't amount to anything. I've lost my record deal. I'm not at university and I don't really know what else I can do. And I thought, so what am I going to do about it? Am I going to be someone that only wants to sing when I've got a record deal handed to me on a plate or do I want to do it because I just love it? I thought, well, it's option two. I just love it. I'll just do it. And if the best is already behind me, then I just have to deal with that, really. Oh, that's amazing. But how... Um how did you cope with being dumped, <laughs> effectively? Yeah. Oh, it was horrible. It was really horrible. I think there were lots of emotions attached to it. And obviously, it's quite humiliating. But also, I found it very confusing and a bit... I was a bit sort of flabbergasted, really, that something could disintegrate so quickly. Not just the record deal side of it, because I understand there's business on that side, but the band. We just got dropped during the year I would have turned 20. And then I sent the band all Christmas cards that year, and I didn't hear back from anybody. And I don't think it was anything malicious. I think it was just they were thinking, 
well, we're not in a band anymore because we don't have a, mm. a deal. Mm. And they were all a bit older than me. A lot of them had been session players. They were a lot more experienced. Yeah, they'd seen it before a bit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. I, I just, I, I misunderstood that we were going to keep going. So yeah, I found myself a bit high and dry, really. But then unbeknownst to me, I, I actually still had a publishing deal. Yeah, I read that. So, so tell me about that. So that's quite... So did, publishing deal... Did you even realise that? Um, I knew that I'd been signed into it, but I didn't think anything would come of it because I'd never written anything. <laughs> so just for, just for people listening who don't understand yes, how exactly. the music business goes, can you just explain to you, it was the same record company that uh, you had a publishing deal with them? Was it? No, so was it? basically when um, with any new artist or band... There's two main things that are that you sign a deal for. So you've got your record deal, which is about your recordings and owning the rights to the recordings and then selling them. Yeah. And then the other side of it is owning the rights to the songwriting. With our band, the majority of the songs were written by this guy, Billy. But I didn't... I mean, I'm sure it was explained to me, by the way, but I'd probably kind of glazed over well, the meeting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but he signed a publishing deal that had to have my name on it too. So when he left... He, the publishing company stopped working with him, but they kept me on. And at the time, I'd never written anything. I didn't write anything in the audience. And I wasn't actually particularly interested in songwriting, to be honest. But um, so I got sent from that publishers, they were a company called Rondor, and they sent me an instrumental of a dance track that was called Groove Jet. And I listened to it and I thought, why are they sending me this? This is actually quite <laughs> insulting. I'm an indie artist and they've sent me this dance track and I think they obviously don't know who I am at all. This is horrible. Yeah. Stop listening to it. And then a couple of weeks later, I was tidying up my flat and found the CD again and put it on and thought, actually, there's something about this I quite like. So I went for a meeting at EMI and I said, what's the deal with this track? And they said, oh, it's a big hit in the clubs already and we're looking for someone to sing it, but we also want someone to write so I went home and wrote a little idea and then went into a studio and recorded it. And they liked my verses and a guy called Rob Davis, who used to be in Mud, um, he'd written the chorus. I was a bit frustrated that he'd said ain't because I was like, that's bad grammar. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I went in and sung it. And then I thought, you know what, this is going to be good for me. Not because I had any idea that the song was going to do anything, but because it was a world away from the indie world. And that world of the enemy and Melody Maker had been quite tough uh, yeah. particularly on, I felt, young girls. They were, it wasn't the most cuddly environment. And I thought, a bit screw you, really. I'm going to do a dance record and yeah. it won't make any sense <laughs> yeah. to you. And you'll be thinking, we don't write about dance music. And therefore, I can just be a bit liberated from that and just have a bit of an adventure. And that'll be good for my head. And and it really was. And then also the song did really well. and kind of scooped me up. And I had this whole other adventure with Groovejet. But I didn't see that happening at all. I had no idea. And that was two two years later? Two years after you were... No, actually no. it was the following summer. So oh, in yeah. actual fact, everything happened very, very quickly from with all of it. Yeah. So yeah, uh, I signed, you know, I started singing in the band at 16 and five years later I had the number one groove jet when I was 21. You can dance, you can jive, having the time of your life. Ooh, see that girl, watch that scene, digging the dancing queen, you're a dancing queen too. But I'm also slightly fascinated by Charm 3, which is mm. a cherry with a detachable stalk. Mm. So, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, there we go. So I see this as a totally as as close to a cherry as we could as we could make it. So mm. all uh, pavé set rubies in eighteen karat gold, 
with a knot in the stalk. Perfect. Um, and and it has a inside. It just has a little ebony stone. But tell me about this cherry. <laughs> <laughs> so I picked this one in because I wanted one of the charms to have a bit more of a sort of cultural reference, I guess. And for me, one thing that was really significant was also watching things like Twin Peaks. Right. So Twin Peaks, I just thought was just most brilliant TV and so atmospheric and quirky and odd and lots of humour and weirdness and I loved it. I absolutely lapped it up. The girl characters in particular, the females, were incredibly... They were just kind of otherworldly, very beautiful. Lots of them had this sort of inner in a stillness and story, like lots of layers going on behind their expressions. And one of them was a girl called Audrey, whose dad, it turned out, ran a place called uh, One-Eyed Jacks, which was a strip club. And in this really... This is on the programme. Yes. This and in this on. very disturbing scene, she ends up going in disguise as a teenage girl to audition to become one of the strippers at One-Eyed Jacks. She just wants to understand more of what's going on there, I think. So she has to go and pass this um, interview and when she goes in, they say, you know, why should we hire you? And she takes a cherry stalk and ties it in a knot with her tongue and puts it on the table. So I thought, that's flipping cool. And then as I got older, I thought, everybody's got to have a party trick, so I had a go at it. And basically, I can do that. So I was like, great. I mean, it's a bit of an annoying party trick because it's seasonal and uh, relies on there being a specific now, fruit. Now. Yeah. <laughs> but, but at least there's something. <laughs> One thing I can do. Um so I thought it was quite fun to have it as a nod to um, party tricks, but also to just outside influences, really. But do you think the kind of the whole look and the vibe has influenced the way that you dress, you, you know, present yourself, or, or, or certainly then? I don't think I'm as stylish as Twin Peaks, but I definitely think that the sort of darkness and, and the quirkiness of it is definitely something that resonated with me then. And, yeah, and I I would love people to, you know, have it there as a, a possible mood board inspiration for me because it definitely is in, in my heart, definitely. Yeah, and I talk about it with my friends at school the next day and everything that went on. And, and it was a bit grown up. So yeah. I was 11, 12 when it was on. So I was quite I young. you were young, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's... I think sometimes it's quite nice as a kid when you get introduced to something that's a little bit more adult and... It just ignites something in you a little bit. Um, and I, I I, don't, I'm quite, I sort of take my lead from my kids about what it is that they seem ready for and what they'll get out of things. Um, and I, you know, that's not to say I'm, I, I, I would do it a turn a blind eye. It's more that I just, I like to keep a very open communication with what they're seeing where and what they're interested and in. to keep relevant yeah, as well. Exactly, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. So was your mum like that? Um, she actually is like that, but she actually didn't let me watch Twin Peaks. Oh, she does. No. So you had to go and watch it quietly. I'd, I'd watch it at my dad's house. Right. Um, and then the every other weekend when I wasn't with him, I had a black and white telly in my bedroom. Mm. So I learned how to watch things so that I had the volume down low and the contrast down low. <laughs> so that if my mum or John came near my bedroom, I could quickly turn them both down, thus not making the sound, the telltale sound click. of the click. But the telly looked like it was off. <laughs> and not having any uh, light under the door. Exactly. Yes. But, uh, I mean, the black and white telly, desperate times. I even used to watch snooker. I was so nocturnal. I would stay up really late and the only thing on late was snooker. Um, and I did actually learn how to watch snooker in black and white. <laughs> <laughs> and with that 
I love this little charm. So this is charm four, mm. uh, and it's just a little amp. Uh, and you were very specific. You said it's just an amp, and it's got to have nice amp written yep. on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so I've just done it exactly as I imagine an amp. Yeah. Um, so it's it's white gold with grey kind of rhodium on it mm -hmm. and then little black diamonds where the where the little knobs are but nice amp engraved at the front cool and again it's a locket because i know that it's representative of richard so i thought mm -hmm. it'd be nice to to engrave it inside with richard and sophie lovely on one side so um and talk us through this nice amp <laughs> yeah i think if if these charms were all for sale in the shop i think this is the one you probably sell the least of isn't it like what's you, that it's a little amp <laughs> you know, no, you'd be so surprised <laughs> okay, i think you'd be enough. so surprised <laughs> <laughs> okay um yeah so this is one i mean i could have easily put richard in the sort of a family one but actually i think richard and i've always been quite good at having things that are just ours too so I wanted to make sure there's one that's just for him and um so Richard and I have now been together uh 18 years I have to think there <laughs> we've actually got quite a handy marker our eldest boy it's always one year older than him we've been together and one year younger than him we've been married yeah um and we met because I was looking for a touring band when I did my first ever solo tour on my own. I needed a band to support me. So hang on, how old were you? Uh, 22, I guess, when we met. God, so young. We didn't immediately start going out, so we knew each other for about a year before we started dating. Mm -hmm. But when we first met, uh, I just went over and I said, nice amp. So that's the first thing I ever said to him, and it now always makes us laugh a little bit. He remembers specifically. He does remember, yes. I think that was a really good chat-up line. Uh, well, he was just like, what? You know what? It, it's funny because I never really understood it before when people said they were friends for a long time before they started dating. I always thought, come on, surely you either you get together or you don't. Mm. Uh, but when we met, I was in a long-term relationship, so was Richard. He just We just became friends and we were touring and we had lots of fun, but it was, you know, in a band. And it wasn't until, yeah, a good sort of year and a half, I think, of knowing each other that we started dating. And then we actually initially decided okay we won't really tell anybody that we're the rest of the band yeah yeah or, or our friends or whatever that we're having a date because we just want to see for ourselves if this feels right and then after we've been on a handful of dates we realized that we were actually um having a baby Not right, then. <laughs> <laughs> so then i had to quickly phone my friends and say you know my bass player richard uh we're going out and actually we're having a baby <laughs> i can still remember the phone calls well, uh, how did you feel when you found that out Given it's it was strange. early days. Yeah, it was early days, but weirdly, it wasn't quite as odd as you might think. I mean, it definitely wasn't a planned baby, uh, but it was, it just didn't also didn't, didn't shock us as much as maybe it might. I don't know, something about it felt like, well, of course, yeah, of course we're having, of course there's someone else going to come. And it meant that right from the get-go, we were ready three, but I think it just set us up that, that we were family from the get-go really and I think yes, in a lot of ways it was it sort of consolidated everything yeah set the time. took away any any kind of question <laughs> yeah and and how did your mum how did your parents react when you told them that because presumably they didn't know you were going out with him either my mum did my mum oh, yeah I'm very yeah. chatty with my mum about everything right. and yeah I wouldn't have been able to keep that a secret from her right. um but she was really helpful actually because she when I phoned her and said uh 
I'm, I think I'm pregnant. And she said, it might not be the right time and it might not be the right man, but it's the right baby. Okay. And I think for both Richard and I, that gave us a bit of advice that meant that we could just have permission to still sort of continue our dating in amongst the fact that we're also going to be parents. So it was almost like we decided, are we ready to be parents? Are we going to have this baby? Yes. And then it was like, okay, well, now we know that's going to be fine. Let's focus on on us. So we still date. He didn't move in until two weeks before Sonny was born. We still dated. I met his parents with like a four-month pump. I mean, it's all quite comedic, <laughs> but we just tried to handle it in a way that gave us space to make sure our relationship felt right. But actually, I really knew it was fine. <laughs> I knew in my heart it was going to be all right. Are you a very instinctive person? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I don't really tend to overthink things too much. And I'm quite happy to go with the flow. And I think in a lot of ways, having you know an unexpected baby, and especially him coming into the world a lot quicker than I was expecting, it sets you up quite well for a lot of parenthood. There's just so much about it you can't plan for. And you can't predict. You've just got to react. Yes. But you know, when you hear people saying, oh, I plan on doing this, or I'm going to make sure I take my baby to these places so that they're really into that. And you think, you don't know who that person is yet, you know? <laughs> and maybe they will be really into that, but you've got to react more. It's a lot more reactive all around than I realise, I think. It so is. I mean, <laughs> I, 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 um, my, I've got four. Um, so I feel like an amateur, actually. No. <laughs> but I've four got four. But I don't think it's ever a good moment there's not a good convenient moment to have Definitely a baby not. is there if you if there was a convenient moment none of us would have babies i know i say that to my <laughs> friends actually i do say yeah, that just if they're never. thinking when should i do this i'm like well it's never gonna they're never gonna be 100 percent right definitely not but 18 years on so mm. what's your secret for happy marriage <laughs> <laughs> well i don't really know of course you'd have to sort of ask me when i've been i don't know i feel like that's like a really I don't want to be like a smug person, no. but I suppose being good in the here and now for me has always relied on keeping in step with each other, lots of communication and everyday kindness. I think you can't place too much on the big sweeping romantic gestures. They're they're very lovely, but they don't really work very well alongside normal life. I think it's for me, it's like little things, you know, if you make if, if Rich makes a cup of tea for himself, make one for me, ask me how my day has been. I check in with him. Just those little everyday things, especially when you're raising young family. There's so much time when you're really just delegating and managing stuff. I think also it helps we both really, I I always really like him, you know, no matter what. So you're, I mean, the friendship is the most. Yeah, and I don't want to cross the line. There's definitely a boundary as well about how we speak to each other and what's okay. And if either of us say things or act in a way that we don't think is cool, just saying, you know what, that wasn't, I didn't really like that. It's very easy, isn't it, to Fit into like get into bad habits of how you converse. I think when yep. you're very familiar with each other and very busy mm. and very manic with yeah, yeah, five yeah. children and two careers and you know all exactly of those things. exactly um, yeah yeah. And how, Sophie, how do you? Because I work with my husband and I have done for God a long time now. But how do you balance that? So will he go on tour with you next year? Yeah, he will actually. But we didn't always do that. We after we started dating we actually stopped touring together and Richard spanned the feeling really took off yeah and he was away a lot when Sonny was little he was away a lot um so there was a long time when we didn't we had did have quite separate things and that that suited us for then better but now I've I love the fact we do things together a lot and we have lots of shared experiences and it means you can kind of eke out the fun so so (laughs) when you go on tour yeah um presumably you've got some help with the with the children Mm. um and will you is it UK tour or is it 
That one will be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it depends what I'm up to, really. Actually, no, there is a bit at the end that's Europe as well. Uh, but, I, I mean, my tour's not until next March. Right. So I, I haven't got into any of the logistics yeah. yet. Yeah. Something will happen is usually my <laughs> my catchphrase for these things. Something normally I'm does. But is your, does, you, does your mum get, or, or both of your, your parents get involved, you and Richard, with mm. the kids? Are they, are they good not in grandparents? Terms of, oh, they're wonderful. But no, I don't use them as childcare. Don't I don't rely on them, them that way. My yeah. mum still has very much her own life going on yeah she only lives 10 minutes away but she's she does her own thing and she's been very smart that she tends to do one-on-one with the kids she very rarely has more than one of them uh which i think is really clever and i'm definitely gonna do that when i'm a grandma uh so this afternoon she's taking out the 12 year old but i don't i don't use her as part of my child no No, because some some parents want some grandparents really want of course yeah yeah yeah. but actually i know i think what i what i really want from her is what's happened just to her to be this brilliant unconditional love supportive grandma that doesn't have any of the judgment that comes with their you know when you're a parent you don't know you're doing that you do anyway and so consequently they've all got a really good relationship with her well that's neatly on to your next charm which i absolutely love when i when i kind of was trying to work out how to design this. I was like, oh, this is such a lovely charm. So it's a hand with different little jewels in each fingertip with a heart uh, on the palm of my hand. <laughs> I just First of all, I just love the description. So I've seen it in yellow gold um, and almost, almost just with a kind of fringe at, at, at the wrist, which might be kind of lace or uh, something in pearls and diamonds. And then on each of the fingertips... I think it'd be so lovely to have each of the children's birthstones. Yeah, that's, I've realised that's what you've done. So, Oh, lovely. Um, that's so and sweet. then I see the little heart, um, just a carved uh, cabochon heart made of red agate in the palm of the hand. I just think this would be so gorgeous. Yeah, it's well. very beautiful. Yeah, really, really pretty. Um, so obviously uh, it is to represent your five children mm-hmm. um, and motherhood. But I can see you've also got a tattoo on your arm. (laughs) It says family on it. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, tell me a bit about how you feel. I mean, I think I'm right. You you had a terrible time with the two eldest, didn't you, pregnancy-wise? They were both born early, yeah. Yeah. So I had something called preeclampsia. Yeah. Uh, which is a really unglamorous <laughs> pregnancy condition where I, I went very puffy and, uh, yeah, they had to deliver my babies essentially for my health, actually. Uh, so Sonny was born eight weeks early and Kit nine weeks early. Kit was particularly tiny, actually. He was a two-and-a-half-pound baby. He was very little. Oh, my God, how terrifying. Um, it was, but then we didn't know any different, which I think helped. And also my sister, Martha, who's now 30, when I was 11, she was born 10 weeks early. So I'd seen... Same preeclampsia? Actually, no. My mum went uh, just spontaneously. Her she had, her waters broke and she went into early labour. So it was a very different thing. But I was home when that had happened. And so I'd seen uh, a happy outcome from that beginning. Yeah. And been familiar with babies with the wires and the incubator and all of that stuff. So when Sunny was born, I think... I took it more in my stride because of that and thought, well, it's okay. I know that Martha's fine, so he'll be fine. And and I don't know why. I just thought I'll just keep having babies after that. Well, no, because that think, is actually barking when I think that about barking, it. Because you think actually <laughs> two like that. Yeah. You think it would be would put you off. 
completely. Yeah. I think I just was really keen to um, to believe the consultant when they said you're very it's very unlikely to happen again. Obviously, I went against the the grain there, but I still thought third time's sure it's fine. And I remember thinking, but if that one's premature, I'll definitely stop. Which is. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I think I just really wanted to have more kids and was just determined to believe which whichever bit of news was positive. So um, hang on a minute. For what? So <laughs> <laughs> when did you realise? I mean, at what point in your life did you think I really want lots of children? I don't think I did. I just think I got quite into it. <laughs> so did you like being pregnant? Uh, Apart from before you got to this stage. Yeah, the first one. No, I was right. really bad at that pregnancy. I felt pretty terrible. But then I started to get more into it. And actually the last three, where I've got to the end and carried full term, I've really enjoyed it. Particularly, I think, with Mickey, my my fifth baby, because I ended up going on tour and doing a gig. When I was about six months pregnant, I did a big gig at the Royal Festival Hall with a 40-piece orchestra. And when the gig was in planning, I knew I was pregnant, but no one else did. And I thought, oh, I've really taken on too much here. And I was actually quite a bit freaked out. I thought, oh, maybe I've been a bit stupid here. But when it came to it, and I was in this sequin katsu with this big bump I felt felt brilliant I felt like this is what a great way to be able to have this moment God, yeah, and I loved it it felt really celebratory brilliant, and then I took him on tour with me after that as well with an orchestra so he was like four or five months old and I felt like it gave us this space because I could he came with me and obviously the little one stayed here and I just found it so wholesome I do this amazing gig where I had literally a conductor and a 20-piece orchestra and my band so Richard was with me and then we'd come off stage and our au pair Yelena would be waiting for me with this little beautiful bubba and his Moses basket on the tour bus and I was like this is the life this is great (laughs) I just felt I felt really clever but it's so and also so privileged in a way because because the youngest quite often doesn't get the the attention yeah. in a big old family, you know. Yeah, they kind privilege of for me, shout. I think. Yeah. Because I'd be out and sometimes people would say, is this your first? And I was like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, but privilege yeah. for him too. Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know if he'd remember that bit, but I think Mickey has really loved having his family home so much in the last two years. He's very, very happy little boy. And I think that's definitely rubbed off that he's had all these big brothers. And I, I'm sure it's the same in your family too. I always say that, the baby of the bunches, that's the peachy spot. Everybody's pleased to see you. Yeah. And everybody's always pleased to see Mickey. <laughs> and does he get away with murder? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And he thinks he's a big boy. I mean, he's it's it's really funny watching the confidence that comes off someone who's got these big brothers and just thinks, right, this is how life works. But but yeah, he's still really little. <laughs> and so they, they really help out. They kind of help out and look after each other. Cause yeah. Guess, yeah, yeah, definitely with him. They, they're all quite savvy with how to keep an eye on, on him, I think. And sometimes they're reading bedtime stories and he gets lots of cuddles. I mean, if anything, I think they'd probably be more cuddly with him than he. he's the one who can be a bit like suddenly go, nah, and push them off and come and find me. But I think they're always ready with that with him. They love him. <laughs> it's sweet you're the only woman in in a six-man house <laughs> no what though I always say no matter how many kids I'd had and whether they were boys or girls I'd always be the only mum and I think that is its own its own space yeah, in that's it that's really true actually yeah. um and this is a very feminine house and luckily for me I've never really had much idea about having boys or girls I just wanted people yeah and they're such different people and you know yourself I'm sure from having a few kids it forms this spectrum and they're quite savvy they'll sort of look at what's gone before and think that seems to be a gap I think I'll head into that space and I think it's brought out different sides of their personality from what's gone before so some are more 
bookish, some are more extrovert, some are more artistic, some are more, you know, scientific. It's like, it's sort of like this spectrum. I feel like across the board, I've kind of got most things represented, really. Well, you've obviously done a fantastic (laughs) job. Uh, I don't know. know, Let let me get them all to adulthood and then you can see how I've done. (laughs) (laughs) Just in terms of how you are as a mum compared to how you were brought up, do you Mm. think, are you, is it similar? Do you have a different way? Do you think you behave differently to the way you were brought up? I think I'm quite similar, actually, Uh, especially to my mum. I mean, I've definitely got a lot of my dad in there too, but I think I can see that I've taken a lot from mum and I also still seek her out a lot for advice. Yeah. And she's got a very... A good way of looking at the world and good she's positive and pragmatic and I think that I've tried to incorporate as much of that into my own mindset as well because I think it's it's quite good stuff to have in your armory that's well, it's good to have the wisdom isn't it uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah yeah really 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 <laughs> good to, and when you were growing up and she was on Blue Peter and people knew who she was except presumably in your peer group mm. um how was that for you and how do your children now feel like that about because it's kind of come full circle for them hasn't yeah it? I think I have mimicked a lot of the same things well I suppose the only thing I'd say is it's probably a bit the difference is that as you said it was really my peers that were watching my mum mm. so that was quite intense and I think now for my kids there's really lots of times where what I'm up to and what they're up to are completely different things most of the time what I'm up to is not really it doesn't really knock on the door of too much of what they're up to at school so then they're, they're not having to deal with their friends. Oh, your mum. I didn't know your mum's, you know. Maybe a little bit, but it's not something we really talk about. And you know what kids are like. They come in the door and it's all about yeah, what's happening in their world. Yeah. Uh, and it's not something... Yeah, I think that's one of the things I love about family life is the fact that it's, you know, sometimes a little bit too grounding, quite frankly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think we can all totally sympathise with that. I need a bit more zhuzh around here. Yeah. <laughs> Particularly now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> God. <laughs> um, so your your second last charm, charm six, um, is the Blythe doll. Mm. Um, so when I had looked this up, actually, I was like, okay, well, what's Blythe She's doll? She's quirky, so, isn't she? She's really quirky, but uh, I'm so excited about the idea of making a little doll like this. She'd because, make a cute charm. Yeah, she'd be so adorable. So, so <laughs> I see her. Um, uh, absolutely three-dimensional. I think she'd have kind of wobbly legs, wobbly arms. So she's going to be uh, yellow gold, um, black hair, um, and blue eyes, all of which I think quite modelled on you. <laughs> and um, when I looked her up, so I think she'd have this little white lace dress, which yeah. is kind of, I, I, yeah. Um, yeah, that's cute. Tell me about this Blythe doll. I mean, I can see because you obviously collect dolls amongst many other things. Yeah, but collect was this... all sorts of stuff. I don't. I didn't really mean to collect dolls. By the way, it's not something. I, if I was writing down my passions, I wouldn't put doll collector. Doll collector, because it's a it bit just, random. That. Yeah, it's, it's like, just happened. So is this eBay? Is eBay it, is, is a it big eBay? Love. Yeah. So I found out about eBay because of Blythe because I had a book, a photo book. So this would have been when I was about 17, 18, and it was by a photographer called Gina Garan, and it was all pictures of this doll, Blythe. And from that, I was talking about it with a friend, and she said, oh, you'd probably find one of those on eBay. I was like, what on earth that? And this is, would have been when eBay was just starting out. Mm. So I became, yeah, an eBayer and found all manner of rubbish before I bought Blythe, which I think was probably after about three years or something, because a lot of them are very, very expensive, and 
outside of my were they, budget. Were they limited edition? They were just only around for a year. I think they got cancelled because I think she scared kids probably. So her head is the size of right. maybe an orange mm. and then her body is average size. I can show you one afterwards really? if yeah, you like. No, yeah, I've really got one next to, door. Yeah. Um, and she has a string in the back of her head, which when you pull it, it turns four different eye colours. You have your conventional <laughs> ones like blue and green, but then there's also orange and pink. Okay, <laughs> So, you know, a it, yeah, a little bit, a little <laughs> bit intense. And... But she ended up having a bit of resurgence because the Japanese market got really excited about Blythe and she ended up being bought by a company called Takara. And in Japan, you've actually got whole shops that are Takara Blythe shops, so you can go in there and... Dress her in. Yeah, and they, of course, take it to the nth degree with different wigs and outfits and all this stuff and they're different sizes and diaries and books and bags and everything. So it's their version of Barbie. Uh, I think probably a little more bit more, stylish. yeah, more adult <laughs> collector, adult collector. You yeah. know, I, I went to the shop when I was lucky enough to visit Tokyo last year, and it was filled with those girls dressed in those, you know, packet fresh, immaculate, coordinated outfits, and I didn't see any kids in there. <laughs> but um, I think I'd had a soft spot for Blythe because she, because she was kind of a little bit weird and a bit kooky, and it gave her character. And I thought, well. Maybe those girls back in the kids back in the seventies were scared of you, but I like you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was, so thank you for that because I was absolutely fascinated. Is how do you get to start collecting dolls, particularly? Mm, it's a slippery dolls slope. Dolls are kind of spooky. I was a bit. Spooky. They are a bit, and I think there's a lot of stuff in my house that probably does scare my kids. To be honest, and I feel like when they're older, they're going to start, tell me about all the things that used to give them nightmares because I'm always finding weird stuff and pictures and. Um, it's, I hope, you know, I can reassure you, it's still a happy, colourful, It doesn't look, nothing, nothing looks spooky here. <laughs> no, no, it's looks like I, I'm surrounded by all these incredible, but but really detailed little, yeah. and, and, and perfectly curated and carefully put, we said. Yeah, I just, you know, I like being surrounded by things. It's like my bedside table has got piles and piles of books and I've tried it where I've cleared it all off, but I don't like it as much. I like stuff. <laughs> when it's, if it's too tidy, I get, it actually makes me a bit, uh, restless. That's so interesting because I've just got to the point because having collected so much stuff and all these miniatures and stuff, I got to the point now where I'm like, no, I've really got to clear the deck. Put it on a eBay, bit. I'll probably buy it off you. Yeah. <laughs> so, Sophie, onto your last charm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's quite a challenge this charm to make sorry but... <laughs> yeah I, want, I wanted it all there didn't yeah, I yeah you really did so you said it's got a, it's it's a tiny fish and chips with a gherkin and mm. ketchup yeah okay so that's quite a lot of ram into a yeah, tiny you've done little... it look it's beautiful you yeah, know it's beautiful but I've drawn it so it'll be more challenging to make but we'll be able to make it you'll tell me but I'd seen it as kind of really traditional Fish and chips kind of in a newspaper, really, is how yep. I'd like to see it. Yep. Uh, so the newspaper will be engraved in white gold. Um, and then you can see the tail of the fish. So, again, he's kind of diamond tail. So you can see his um, scales, if mm-hmm. that's the word. Uh, yellow gold uh, chips <laughs> sticking <laughs> out. <laughs> And then we've got the green gherkin, which was a really important part of, yeah. <laughs> this, of the story. It is. Um, and <laughs> so I've done, I've done the green gherkin in green savorites, which are quite sharp greenstone, I think will look perfect. Gherkin. Um, <laughs> and then hanging off the side is the ketchup perfect. bottle. Yeah. Um, and the ketchup bottle is also 
three-dimensional uh, ruby set in rose gold with a with a white label that you know will will say uh, ketchup Thanks. on it. Uh, she has taught me through these fish and chips and the gherkin and the ketchup. Yes. <laughs> so I definitely wanted to have food in there somewhere. I love food. I get very excited about what to eat. Um, both Richard and I cook. Well. However, of course, fish and chips is not something we would cook. We would go and get that from the fish and chip shop. And I think it's probably, you can trace through my life that going to the fish and chip shops was something that I do fairly regularly with my mum or with my dad. It was always a bit of a treat. And even now, if Richard and I want to do something a bit celebratory, this might be the way that we choose to celebrate it. When I, I remember when I got to the final of Strictly, we had a fish and chips meal. Uh, <laughs> really? um, if we're in for New Year's Eve, that's what we'll have. That with champagne. Um, Did the kids like it? They do, but I think it's my like Richard always says my death row meal, which is a bit dark. But you know what I mean. It's like my my favourite meal, basically fish and chips. But it has to have a gherkin because I love gherkins. And sometimes I'll just go into the fish and chip shop and get a couple of gherkins. <laughs> Can you just go and buy a bottle of gherkins? They taste different from the fish You've and chips. You've got to have the shop. fat ones, though. Exactly. Not those little... Yeah. No, 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 yeah. No. So, <laughs> yeah, when I was a kid, I would quite regularly just get gherkins and eat them. <laughs> that is quite unusual for a child, actually. I know, and I really it? like the vinegariness, the mm, sweet vinegariness. I'm quite into that sort of thing. But the ketchup has to be there because I adore condiments. So ketchup is probably my all-time fave, although mayonnaise would probably be up there too. Um, I love the fact that, that, that this last charm is just fish and chips. They're such simple pleasures, but anyway. Um, I know, I know. but I, And it's funny because you say, like, what's it, what's it all about? And it's like, I just really like eating it. It's, it's not, <laughs> I, I keep trying to, you know, expand, but we, no, no, I just no, love fish and love chips. <laughs> uh, anyway, so next time the celebration, I, I think you've got a new book, haven't you? I have. So I've written about a lot of the things we've been talking about and, and more. So it's been quite nice because a lot of these things are quite close to the surface again, really. Um, yeah, that comes out in October. I've done it this year. What's it called? It's called Spinning Plates. And initially oh, yeah. I was approached about just doing a series of essays about, I don't know, I suppose thought pieces on things. But to be honest, it just all came tumbling out. I was like, no, I just want to write about everything. <laughs> so there it is. I'm just in awe you've got time <laughs> to do all of this stuff. It's absolutely extraordinary. Alongside five children. Well, husband, I have yeah, support, like... but also I really wanted to. And I think yes. when you want to get things done, yeah. you just find it, don't you? Yeah. The thing for me that I think made it go a lot quicker and easier... Oh, hello. Oh, hello. I'll tell you quick. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> this is I've probably got, quite a good point. But, but you can, yeah, I've, got, I've just got my Ready? last question. But do you want to guess him? It's fine. If we open that door, there's no going back. What's your last question? <laughs> my last question is, so, Sophie, as you know, I, um, I'd like to make you one of these charms. And I think the question is, is when somebody finds your life in seven charms, what do you want the story of your legacy to be? Yeah, I was thinking, of, I think you're getting a legacy, which yeah. is an interesting one, because it's not really something I ever used to think about. And funnily enough, one of the first podcasts I did for my podcast, I uh, was a, uh, a woman called Candy's Breathweight. Uh, she's written a book called I'm Not Your Baby Mother. And she spoke a lot about legacy. And it was really startling because I thought, I've literally never thought in those mm. terms. And I suppose over the last year with lockdown, a lot of people have had to think a little bit more about that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think, I think all told, the legacy is either helping to hopefully raise well five, five people. That's a good start. Or 
all the the discos and and the music. I don't really need to have any big shakes. If if my great 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 grandbabies look back and I was just someone who wore sequins and sang about the place, I'm actually I'm actually okay with that. Pretty happy. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. With Pretty that. happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so lovely. But which um, so which time we're going to do? I don't know. Please don't. Is say there... it's fish and chips? No, it's not fish and chips. <laughs> it's not fish and chips, and it's not the amp, <laughs> and it's not the cherry, and it's not the tube. So I think we're kind of between... I don't think it's Blythe either, actually. I think it's got to be either the hand or the disco ball. I'm kind of tempted to go for the hand, you know. I think the disco ball I've represented in lots of different ways externally, but none of it would mean anything without without the babies and the family. So I think that kind of that kind of is everything. Actually, I think. Do you know? I think it'll be so. You'll love it. It's going to be divine. I will. It's going to be really, really divine. And um, and, and good for me. I had so many babies. I get more get, jewels. <laughs> you get more jewels. <laughs> and actually, that encompasses everything. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to my life in Seven Charms with me, Anushka Dukas. Please do like, review and subscribe to hear our latest episodes. Thank you to Fairly Media for our audio production.